We turn in the scriptures this morning in the first place to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25, we'll read this chapter together as prophetic background to what we're going to read from John chapter 2, which is where we'll place our focus this morning as we work with the gospel of John. Isaiah 25, last time you'll remember that we saw how Jesus is the stairway between heaven and earth, how he has bridged the gap between God and man with the promise that we too shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. But this morning we turn our attention to the beginning of his public ministry where he identifies himself as the promised Messiah, but not by what he says, but rather by what he does. To help us make that connection, we read Isaiah 25, paying special attention to the promises, for our God is indeed a promise-keeping God, giving especially close attention to the promise in verse 6 of this chapter. This is God's holy word. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow and aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people as the veil is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low the pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down and lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Let's turn also in our Bibles to John chapter 2. Read verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 2, keeping in mind that this too is God's holy word preserved for us in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him we might have everlasting life. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. But when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his disciples, to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So far the reading of God's own word. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of our God stands firm. It endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have dedicated careful study of the Gospel of John, have often divided this Gospel account into two main parts, the, the book of signs in chapters 2 through 12 and the book of glory in chapters 13 and following. And here in the first part of his Gospel, John bears witness to these miracles as signs, which, which not only serve as manifestations of the divinity of our Lord, but also signs that point beyond themselves something that is far greater. If it's helpful to you boys and girls, just think about those signs and wonders which God enabled Moses to perform before Pharaoh. For example, that ability to turn Aaron's staff into a serpent, or as was the case in the first sign, the the first plague, how God gave Moses the ability to turn the water of the Nile River into blood, thus killing all all the fish, leaving no water for the Egyptians to drink from. Each of those signs pointed beyond themselves to a greater reality. Each of those signs pointed beyond the sign itself to the fact that the Lord, the God of Israel, was the one true God. That he was far mightier than all the false gods of the people of Egypt. And in much the same way, that's how John would have us study the signs of Jesus as well. John would have us see that each of these signs are filled with supernatural significance. And so as we approach these signs, boys and girls, it's important that we don't come to them as mere spectators. It's important that we don't simply approach these signs with a sense of awe. How, how amazing it must have been to, to be with the disciples when they, see these, when they saw these things take place. But rather, John wants us to know that each one of these signs touches our lives. That each one of these signs touches the lives of all who read of them, of all who, who embrace the Christ who performed them. That most certainly needs to be the case as we come to the first of these signs this morning, the Lord's miraculous changing of water into wine. As I very much hope we'll come to see with each of the signs in this gospel, the first of these signs certainly touches down our lives here and now and brings us into contact again with the one who performed it so long ago. Because what we see here in John chapter 2 is nothing short of the new age breaking forth into the old as The water here is changed into wine in this nondescript city. At this nondescript wedding, John propels us forward to the eternal wedding feast between the bridegroom and the bride. He propels us forward to the new wines of the new creation where death and darkness and sorrow have finally been swallowed up 
by life and light and everlasting joy. You'll recall from a few weeks ago that how John the Baptist had stepped onto the stage of redemptive history as a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, for in God's providence the wait was finally over. The Messiah had finally come, and with him came the joy of heaven come down to earth. And here in John chapter 2, we come to see that Jesus really is this Messiah, the one in whom the psalmist's words have taken on a new life of their own. In him there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because here we see that Jesus brings true joy. Jesus is the bringer of, of messianic joy, that joy which God's people have been waiting for for so long. And in him the promise of the prophecy of Isaiah has already now begun to break its way into our world today. For on this day, we can already say of Jesus, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, that he let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so as we work our way through this passage, we want to notice three things together this morning. In the first place, we want to notice the expectation of Jesus' unexpected grace. That's what we see in verses 1 through 5, as, as Mary lets her petition be known to God. In the second place, we need to see the emptiness of Israel's insufficient rituals. And finally, we consider the eminence of Jesus' unmatched glory, on account of which the disciples believed on him, which is what John would summon us to do also this morning, to believe on him. Jesus is the bringer of messianic joy. And we notice this, first of all, in light of Mary's expectation that Jesus will show grace. Even in this most unexpected place, the stage for this miraculous sign is set in Cana and Galilee, where Jesus and his disciples have been invited to a wedding. And it really is quite significant that Jesus will begin his public ministry in such an unstriking place as this. In fact, this little village of Cana and Galilee was so small and so insignificant that it was only until fairly recently that, that New Testament scholars had any idea as to where this little village even was. And yet that the Lord Jesus would begin his ministry here in this obscure and mundane village in Galilee, that he would begin his public ministry here at this ordinary run-of-the-mill wedding, that he would begin his public ministry here tells us something about the heart of our Savior. That he would begin his ministry here in this way at this place tells us something about the love and grace of Jesus Christ. You may remember how at the very start of John's gospel, John began by knowing that from before the foundation of the world, Jesus was the transcendent, majestic Lord of glory. That, that he was with God from the, before the world was even made. That without him, nothing was made that was made. That in him was life and that, that life was the light of men. John showed us the transcendent glory of this Jesus who tabernacled with us, who dwelt with us. And so as one pastor comments on this passage, it really is quite significant that such a person from heaven would be so willing to mingle with such ordinary and insignificant people on the earth. This amazing condescension speaks volumes about the nature of the grace and love that lie behind it. For Jesus is more willing to approach ordinary people with their 
everyday needs, needs which are oftentimes far deeper than most of us realize. He is more willing to, to meet ordinary people with their everyday needs with his grace and power. And this is true not only of these nameless nobodies here in Galilee, but also for anyone here who feels like they are a nobody today. I tell you this morning, people of God, that if you feel like a nobody in the eyes of the world, we find here in John chapter 2 that you are a somebody in the eyes of Jesus. And that much Mary, the mother of Jesus, has come to understand quite well. And so... We read in verse 3 that when the wine had ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now if we're to understand the significance of this sign, we have to understand what it meant for running out of wine at a wedding such as this. Running out of wine at a wedding in the ancient world was no small matter, but in fact the family of the bridegroom is in a personal crisis. And while we are not here told how exactly this crisis has come about, we are aware of some of the consequences. Suffice it to say, someone has made a gross miscalculation. And for that miscalculation, a family faces the great threat of embarrassment and shame. In fact, it was even known to happen in the ancient world that the family of the bride could file a lawsuit against the family of the bridegroom for this very thing because To run out of wine at a wedding was tantamount to saying, you know what, we didn't even care. We didn't care enough about you or this wedding to prepare properly for our guests. And to say there is no wine was equivalent to saying there is no joy. The joy is gone. The wine is gone. And so it was actually the prerogative of the family of the bride to file a lawsuit against the family of the bridegroom. That's how insulting running out of wine could be perceived by the family of the bride. The shame of such a gross miscalculation could latch on the bridegroom's family name for many years. But when you or someone you know is facing great shame, where do you turn? When you, are, when you or someone you know is facing great shame, there's only one place to turn. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Mary is doing here. But notice how Jesus responds to her in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, lest there be many misunderstanding, Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother by calling her woman. He's speaking to her respectfully in this way. In fact, he later speaks to her in the same way with much tenderness and care as he hangs upon the cross. He says, woman, behold the son. And to John, behold your mother. Jesus isn't disrespecting his mother, not at all, but he is distancing himself ever so slightly from her, at least in the sense that that at the end of the day, Mary must regard Jesus not only as her child, not only as, as the one whom she carried in her womb and raised through childhood, she must regard him not only as a good son whom she had come to to lean on in times of Christ such as this, but at the end of the day, Mary, the mother of Jesus, must see him as we must see him. She too must regard him first and foremost as the Son of God, the Christ who is sent into the world, not so much to tackle earthly affairs, but rather to do the will of the Father who sent him. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in this gentle rebuke of his mother. His hour has not yet come. This 
phrase is going to reverberate again and again throughout the Gospel of John. It's a saying that highlights the fact that Jesus must be ever so careful, careful from doing anything that might undermine the mission that the Father has placed him on. He must not do anything that would, that would draw attention to himself too prematurely so as to, to hinder him from doing the Father's will. But Mary leaves the matter to Jesus' hands. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary, you see, knows the truth of what the Apostle Paul is going to say much later on. Mary knows that, that she can bring to God both the big things as well as the little things. That she can trust that God will do what is right and good. Do not be anxious about anything, says Paul, but in everything. That is, in the big things and in the little things and everything. Let your prayer and supplication with, with thanksgiving be made known to God. And Mary understands that. And so as one pastor put it so well, Mary is willing both to, to ask anything as well as to yield everything. For the gospel not only teaches us to ask of him whatever we need, but also to yield to him, to do as he wills, trusting him to do what is good and right according to the exact measure and the exact proportion that is perfectly sufficient to our need. And so Mary leaves the matter in Jesus' hands. Do whatever he tells you. For whatever he does will surely be sufficient, not only to her need, but also to the need of the bridegroom, of the family of the bridegroom. But now as we come to verses 6 and following, we can't help but notice that this sufficiency of Christ is placed in stark contrast with the insufficiency of the rites and rituals of Israel. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, we read, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of, it, some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. As we read from the prophecy of Isaiah, this is the kind of kingdom that Christ brings into the world, into a world of emptiness, into a world of despair. Jesus brings true joy, as God said he would do. On this holy mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And Isaiah was not alone. But so many of the prophets saw the connection between fine wine and the perfect blessings that would only come from the Lord's hand. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way, saying, The Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from, from the hand of those who are stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the house of Zion. They will, they will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men as well as old men. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy in the place of their sorrow, said God. The prophet Amos put it this way, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make 
gardens and eat their fruit. And these things foretold by the prophets were all told in connection with the messianic promise, with the promise that God would, would send the Messiah into the world, the seed of the woman, to finally crush the head of the seed of the serpent forever. For it was only then when that happened that joy and gladness could finally, fully be restored. And here we see that that's what Jesus brings. That's what John is telling us here in this sign of, of water being turned into wine. John is telling us that, that the feast of the kingdom has already begun to break into to this world of spiritual famine. And so writes one pastor, the astonishment of the master of the banquet at the best wine being saved for last is really a commentary, not, not just in the days of the feast, but it's a commentary on the history of the world. For God in his dealings with the human race had saved the best of the wine until now in the sending of his son, and or that we might know the fullness of his grace. All this is accented by the fact that the jars which were used to provide this new wine were, were jars that had formerly been used for the rites of Jewish, Jewish purification. As you may know, there were many Old Testament laws and rites about purification. Those rituals, each one served to, to point the Israel forward to a day when God would make that outward purification a reality in their hearts. But when Jesus finally came into the world, as we've heard many times before, so many of the Jews had forgotten this very thing. Many had become so concerned with the cleanliness of their hands, that is, their outward appearances, that they had forgotten the fact that God looks at the heart, that God's concerns with the heart and that which was within. And so we can be sure that had the scribes and Pharisees been present at this feast, they would have been aghast at the thought that Jesus would have used these jars for purification for a purpose such as this. And in so doing, they totally would have, would have missed out on the fact that in the person and work of Christ, Old Testament ritual is finally giving way to New Testament reality. That's what's going on here. Old Testament ritual is giving way to New Testament reality as the waters, which used to be made for the cleaning of our hands, is now replaced with wine that, that we digest. It's an inward reality of joy that those waters are pointing forward to. Old Testament ritual is giving way to New Testament reality. And so we see here that Jesus really is the life of the party. Jesus is the life of the party. We know well that among the reason that Jesus came was that we might not only have life, but that we might have life abundantly, which is seen here in these empty jars associated with the law being filled to the brim with the new wine of the kingdom of heaven. For what the law could not do, God did in the sending of his son, the likeness of sinful flesh, and that's what we see taking place here. John said at the start of the gospel that through that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the law came judgment. Through the grace of Christ came abundant life. 
And John would not have us miss the connection between these two monumental figures. For when Moses began his public ministry, what again did he do? When Moses began his public ministry, he turned water into blood. A sign of God's judgment against those who would not hear his voice. But when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he turned water into wine. A sign that whoever will believe on him will surely not perish, but have everlasting life. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. And this we find here in verse 11 was really at the heart of Jesus' purpose in performing this miraculous sign. This, the first sign Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Through this commentary on his miracle, John turns the question also on us. Do you also? Having seen his glory, have you also believed on him? John, you see, has recorded this story for that very reason, that we might believe in him, that we might partake of the greater wine that alone can finally gladden the heart of man, a wine, the wine of the new heaven, the new earth, where Isaiah's prophecy has, will finally be fully fulfilled, when it shall finally be said, God has swallowed up death forever. He has wiped away all the tears from our face and the reproach of his people. He has taken away from the face of the earth. I wonder if John perhaps had this sign in mind when he wrote those familiar words we, we heard in our call to worship. Blessed are those who are, inv- who are invited to the greater wedding. Blessed are those who are invited to the greater wedding supper of the Lamb. For although many pastors have referred to this account at weddings in order to to speak to how important it is that we should invite Christ into our marriages. That's really not the point of this story at all, is it? Because here in this sign, Jesus shows that it's not so much that we should invite him into our weddings, but that Jesus has invited us to his. Something for those of us who are married and for those of us who hope soon to be married to keep in mind. Yes, of course, there is a sense in which we must always make Jesus the heart of our marriages. That's true. But true marital bliss is grounded not in our invitation to Jesus. But true marital bliss is found by living in light of the fact that according to the riches of his grace, Jesus has invited us into his. Jesus is the bringer of messianic joy. This, the first of his sign, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. John ends this account by taking us back to where we started, to the obscure, insignificant village of Cana and Galilee, to accent for us, again, the fact that Jesus came to save those whom the world considered a bunch of nobodies. That he came to save you and me. That he regards us as somebodies. He begins his ministry here at a wedding in crisis. And in so doing, the family of the bridegroom, who would have otherwise been forced to live out the rest of their lives in embarrassment and shame, is instead praised for saving the best wine for last. Did you notice here that Jesus doesn't even take the credit? 
Rather so gracious is Christ that he allows the family of the bridegroom to receive the praise. Because this is who Jesus is. Even though he does all the work, we get the praise. Even though he does all the work, God rewards us according to his grace. And so here we have but a glimpse, people of God, just as Jesus transformed a wedding party on that day so long ago, I tell you this morning that he stands ready to transform your lives today. For he has shed his own blood on the cruel cross in order that we might partake of the new wine of the new creation. Therefore, each one of us must take to heart the words of Mary. Do whatever he tells you. Go and do whatever this one tells you. This, the first of his signs he did in Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. May God grant that each one of us should also do the same, that each one of us also might believe on him so that we too shall feast with him forever at that great marriage supper between the bride and the lamb. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again thankful for speaking to us by the word of Christ. Thankful for these signs that point beyond themselves to a greater reality that highlight for us that Jesus is the bringer of messianic joy. We thank you, Lord, that we can expect from him great grace, even in unexpected places, to unexpected people. We thank you, O Father, that he has come to bring fullness and sufficiency to the emptiness of the law, that what the law could not do, Christ has done by coming in the flesh. We thank that although through Moses came the law, through Christ has come grace and truth. And Father, we thank you for revealing to us the eminence of his unmatched glory, that by this glory, you might summon each one of us to believe on him, to trust in him, to do whatever he says. May we stand forever in awe of this Savior who stands ever ready to transform our lives today and every day. May we learn increasingly to look to him as the only ground of all our salvation. And may he come soon. Father, we long to see the bridegroom face to face. We long to sit at his table to drink the new wine of the new creation when it shall finally be said, God has wiped away all the tears from our eyes and death has been swallowed up by life. May he come quickly. We pray in his name. Amen.